to episode 18 of Long Hair Do Care. I am your host, Georgie Corkery, pronouns she, her, hers, also happy to go by they, them, theirs. And this podcast is all about queer, intersectional, eco-feminist topics. Today's topic, or I should say my September topic, because this is the first time that I am doing episodes per month instead of per week, because that clearly was not sustainable, and I am all about sustainability. So, this is my September 2021 episode, and the topic is going to be Utah State University Inclusion Center. That's the topic, or USU instead of Utah State. And my guest today is Sarah Tinnerman. Tinnerman? Timmerman. Timmerman. <laughs> and Sarah Timmerman is the Women and Gender Program Coordinator for Utah State University's Inclusion Center and also teaches Intersectional Gender Studies 1010. Hi, Sarah. Welcome. Hi. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Uh, just for everybody, again, my name is Sarah Timmerman. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Sarah and I met in September. This recording is actually not done in September, but that's okay. But we met in September at the No Man Lands Film Festival, which was put on by the outdoor program here mm -hmm. at uh, Utah State University or USU. I'm just going to say USU from here on out, folks. And I want to talk about that film festival as part of a conscious content consumption. But before we get there and jump into our topic, we're going to talk about cats. So, <laughs> Sarah, have you Love. interacted with any cats this past month? Yes. In fact, I interacted with one today. I went to Ooh. a house showing. Me and my partner are looking at buying a house, and Ooh. so we went to a house showing, and the cat was there, and I spent more time with the cat <laughs> than I did looking at the house, to which my partner said that we should go back to the Humane Society, which we were at last week, and I should just adopt a cat. All right, so you're thinking about adopting yes. a cat. Oh, that's so exciting. And thinking about buying a house. Yes. Sounds like lots of things coming together. That's exciting. Well, I, I met a new cat in September named Milo, and it's my friend Ronan's cat. Shout out to Ronan and Milo. Milo is long and elegant and has a cute snout and when i first met him he wanted to kill some amphibian or reptile that ronan also owned and it was just staring at the tank and it was really cute and then of course i interacted with data and moira if anybody listens to my podcast they have heard me talk about data and moira they are beck's cats shout out to beck and then i've been going on a lot of walks in logan and in my neighborhood there are so many cute fat cats and there's a calico one and a yellow one that I keep running into. I don't know their names. They don't have collars, but they're cats that I have pet. There are <laughs> other ones. There's this black one who I always see and I'm like, come hang out with me. And it just no interest. So per my cat calling episode, I leave it alone and I try <laughs> not to scare it. Consent is important. Consent is important. <laughs> And cats are a good lesson in consent. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> For wildlife, have you seen any wildlife recently? I have, actually. Last week when I was driving, so I came out through Old Main up here where the quad is. At night, It was uh, we had an event, so I was probably about 8 p.m., and I saw this giant deer Ooh. Like, with massive horns wow. just right across Old Main. 
That's and pretty fun. Like, oh, damn. That doesn't surprise me too much because we are close to the mountains. Mm-hmm. And Old Main is on campus. This yes. space is on USU's campus. <laughs> but we are pretty close to Logan Canyon. So I haven't seen deer here yet, but that's pretty cool. Yeah, I've been up here for over 10 years, and I don't think I've ever seen oh, it really? on campus. Oh, really? Wow. Besides last week. Okay. Yeah. Well, I went for a run up Temple Fork. Is I haven't been there before or since, honestly. <laughs> and we saw a moose. I was running with a group and a dog, and the dog was off leash. And then oh, suddenly no. the dog started running forward, and I was like... <gasps> Ginger doesn't normally do that. Dog's <laughs> name is Ginger. And so I sprinted up and Ginger had stopped and there was a moose right there. And then the moose ran down the trail in the opposite direction. I quickly put her on a leash Whoa. and half the other people in my group saw the moose too. So That's it was a terrifying. young buck. I don't know if they call them bucks. Bull? Bull? I think moose. they call them bull. It was yeah. a young bull. Yes. But saw a moose. And then on that same trail, Temple Fork at the bottom, we saw five beavers. Yes. Oh, it was so cool. Those beaver dams up there at Temple yeah. Fork are really cool. Oh, if you go there, apparently around dusk, mm-hmm. they get active. That was really great for me to see. I haven't seen that many beavers in one go. So that's my wildlife. And then Tesla's. Assuming I'm the only one in the world currently who's counting the number of Teslas they see per month with a clicker, you probably don't have any to share. Um, nope. My Tesla count is 134, which is wow in a month. But the thing is, the last week in August that I counted was also 134, and that was a week's worth. So oh. the difference, I spend more time in Logan. Uh, than Salt Lake City. That actually makes sense. I was like, yeah. I honestly, one, I couldn't tell you what a Tesla looks like. So <laughs> I don't know that I have seen anyone or not. I think they're <laughs> beautiful. They have cute little butts and nice eyes. <laughs> See, now I'm going to go Google Tesla. Yeah. <laughs> I think they look nice. I am not the biggest fan of the owner of the company, but I do like Teslas. And I guess one reason why I started doing it, counting these, is... It was like a sign of change, you know? The more I think about it, it's a sign of wealth (laughs) (laughs) and also a sign of we're moving maybe towards a more sustainable future, but more the wealth thing. I was originally did it because I was like, yeah, sustainability. And I was like, (laughs) oh, no, it's... That is a hard thing with the sustainability movement is yeah. it's become kind of a sign of wealth. It's, there's a lot to unpack with that. That's definitely a facet of it that I didn't realize when I was first enchanted by the idea of saving the world. And the more I get into it, it's like, yeah, not everybody can shop at the farmer's market. But hopefully environmental justice is becoming a bigger and bigger movement. That's why talking about the intersections of things is yes, so important. Exactly, exactly. That's a I think a good segue into conscious content consumption and the first being No Man Lands Film Festival. Yes. And this is again the festival that Sarah and I met at. It's films that are all about people who do not identify as men mm-hmm. in the wilderness. This is a quote from their website Undefining feminine in adventure and sport through film. Yeah, so perfect. And they are a film festival based out of Denver, Colorado. Mm-hmm. And essentially, it's all about breaking barriers. Breaking barriers. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it essentially is just looking at anyone who is non-male identified and showcasing them out there doing wild, beautiful, 
badass things. It is an incredible film festival. They do have it sometimes virtually. So for those folks that were not able to come and see the film festival, definitely check out their website. I'm going to link to their website in the show notes, but something that they do every year. Mm -hmm. And I know that they don't just have all the films accessible, but where and when they are, I think it's worth checking them out. One thing that I do like about the No Man Lands Film Festival is that it's no man instead of women Mm -hmm. in the wilderness, even though it was more women-centric at the festival that was here on campus at USU. But the fact that it's no man's land and it's open to all genders made me really happy. I'm going to read a little bit about the film festival. No Man Lands Film Festival is the premier all-women, and again, I think it's (laughs) all-non-men, adventure film festival based out of, again, Denver, Colorado, that meets the need and desire to highlight and connect women in pursuit of the radical. They are a collaboration and celebration of humans who are more deeply engaged in enhancing the feminine presence in the adventure arena. The goal of this film is to connect like-minded individuals who are action-oriented, wish to support and share vision of gender equality, have a desire to experience their passion and environment through a uniquely feminine lens. And above all else, adventure! For me, that's exciting because I have always really liked being in the outdoors, And there's a lot of conversations going on about women working in the outdoor industry or just industries that are based around the outdoors, like Mm -hmm. the division of natural resources or fish and wildlife, hearing about minority genders trying to work in those fields. I tried to work in that field and I was (laughs) not impressed, didn't want to go that way. And yeah, we need leaders in that, but not everyone wants to be the first. I didn't. (laughs) It can be pretty hostile. Yeah. Yeah, it is a predominantly male-dominated field, and that just is really hard to break into. Yep. Especially when, I mean, this isn't the biggest issue, but a really tangible one for, I think, men to understand is you go there and they're like, oh, we only have boots men's size nine. That's Uh the smallest (laughs) we have. And we only have waders that are men's medium. You're like, I'm literally swimming in these waders, and it's dangerous for me to be in these waders. So... That's my issue, and one reason why this was exciting. I'm going to read a little bit more about this film festival. Along with cultivating a deep interest in exploring the vastness of our planet from a groundbreaking point of view, we strive to create a history of motivating audiences to implement and inspire change through human collaboration. That's nice, because we do need representation, Mm -hmm. and film is a huge part of the content we consume, so being able to see that was nice for me. That's why I do conscious content consumption. Moving forward, the film festival celebrates and uplifts gender diverse identities and is committing to creating a safe and inclusive space that champions the experience of women, non-binary people, and transgender men. Being inclusive requires more effort and understanding of social constructs in order to break them down and undefine what it means to be feminine in the outdoor arena. Again, I'm going to link to this in the show notes. Do you have any comments on any of the films that we watched? I mean, so I've seen the film festival about three years Oh, okay. And the thing that I am the most excited about with it, and the thing that impresses me the most with this particular film festival, is they really do a good job at representing intersecting identities. Yes. They really... 
you know, there are similar film festivals that do a good job of displaying women in the outdoors, but I don't think there's another film festival that so well represents non-binary folks, folks outside of like any gender identity, but yeah. also BIPOC folks. Yeah. The fact that most of the films represented women of color doing things that are radical and badass in the outdoor film industry. It just is the most exciting aspect of that film festival for me. That was what I was worried about going into it. I was like, oh man, these are going to, it's just going to be straight white Uh women. And from the beginning, the first film we watched was Pedal Through. I don't remember the names of the folks in it, but they, I mean, right from the beginning, it was like, oh yeah, people of color, Mm -hmm. mountain biking, and trying to diversify the sport. It was also a funny one, yes. and it <laughs> highlighted some of their struggles and the accomplishment of this little journey they went on. So that was fun. I highly recommend that if you can attend No Man Land's Film Festival in the future, you should. The second conscious content consumption I want to share is an article called Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome. <laughs> For the folks at home, I'm snapping internally. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can snap audibly if you like. Snap. <laughs> uh, this is an article published in Harvard Business Review on February 11th, 2021 by Ruchika Tulsa and Jody Ann Burry. I hadn't thought of that imposter syndrome was something that shouldn't be told to me. It's something that I often identified with, and I hadn't thought about it until my friend Leanna shared it with me. Shout out to Leanna. Thank you for sharing this. I'm going to share a quote from it. Imposter syndrome is loosely defined as doubting your abilities and feeling like a fraud. It disproportionately affects high-achieving people who find it difficult to accept their accomplishments. At the beginning of the article, this is what we get, is a framing of what it is. And quickly, they start to break that down of... It disproportionately affects high-achieving people. That's not necessarily true, but from where imposter syndrome came from, the study that it originated from, it makes sense. The first study, conducted in 1978 by psychologists Pauline Rose Clance and Suzanne Imes, they developed the concept originally termed imposter phenomenon and focused on high-achieving women. So, you know, they weren't bringing in everybody. They concluded that despite outstanding academic and professional accomplishments, women who experience the imposter phenomenon or imposter syndrome persist in believing that they are not really bright and have fooled anyone who thinks otherwise, which (laughs) (laughs) I think is a funny way to like conclude your research (laughs) is they don't think they're bright um, and they think they've fooled people. But then the meat of the article comes in and it says... Imposter syndrome puts the blame on individuals without accounting for the historical or cultural contexts that are foundational to how it manifests in both women of color and white women. Imposter syndrome directs our views towards fixing women or any minority gender at work instead of fixing the places where they work. Yeah, I mean, I think that pretty much sums it up. And I think that this is something that we're seeing a lot of when it comes to this idea of empowering women, whether it's with body positivity or imposter syndrome or any of these things where 
women are told the problem is you and how you are seeing yourself and that yeah. you're not accepting yourself and no context is given to why that is and mm-hmm. the hostile environment that creates that problem where women are getting, especially women of color in the uh, in the workplace are constantly ha- receiving microaggressions that say you're not supposed to be here. Yep. And then we're like, but why do you feel like an imposter? You know? <laughs> yeah. And that's where the rest of the article goes. And again, working for the division of wildlife resources or natural resources, it's like this place wasn't constructed for women. This was constructed for men. And mm-hmm. it, w- it definitely wasn't constructed for people of color or people of other gender minorities. To continue on, imposter brings a tinge of criminal fraudulence to the feeling of simply being unsure or anxious about joining a new team or learning a new skill. Adding that the medical undertone of syndrome, which recalls the feminine hysteria diagnosis of the 19th century. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> this is a syndrome that you have. You're hysterical. <laughs> And you're imposter, you're a fraud. Instead of just being like, I'm nervous, mm-hmm. it's a scapegoat to be like, hey, the system wasn't built for you and you're nervous. So, boom, imposter syndrome. It's a, yeah, it's once again saying your feelings are the problem. You know, your feelings about this, whether it's like anything that isn't just pleasant, a pleasant feeling, that that's the problem. Yep. Who is deemed professional is an assessment process that is culturally biased and skewed. That was said by Tina Opie, associate professor at Babson College. Yeah, so I think that what Tina's getting at there is that when we're talking about who's professional, like the the workplace in general, especially when we're looking at corporate America, right? And like what you were talking about with natural resources, the environment is set up for a very specific type of person. Mm -hmm. And ultimately that is really based off of cultural ideas of professionalism that are deeply rooted in racism. And so for black women, women of color in the workforce, that assessment of what's professional is deeply rooted in a racist history. It's really unfortunate to see something that, I'm happy to say has been discussed broadly in my program. Yeah. And maybe it's just with my new cohort and a few really awesome professors. Mm -hmm. I don't know yet how accepting this quote unquote standard of professionalism is, but hopefully it is. And I've been pretty open about she, they pronouns, walk around with my stickers and flagging a little bit, though I do, I can pass so far. So good. But to end on a happier note with this article, I'm going to give you their conclusion. The answer to overcoming imposter syndrome is not to fix individuals, but to create an environment that fosters a variety of leadership styles and in which diverse racial, ethnic, and gender identities are seen as just as professional as the current model. I think we already said that. (laughs) Um But moving forward, I think it will be fun to see, hopefully, one day a president with pink hair and an asymmetrical haircut. Uh And it'll be fun to see. 100%. Um, It's really good to hear that the natural resources program is moving in that direction. Yeah. 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 I even made a comment on the graduate school handbook. Mm -hmm. I was like, so here it says, the student may he, she want to do this. And I was like... Does it have to be he or she? And they immediately took that and ran with it, and they're changing it to they. Amazing. Just they. So I feel hurt and accepted for the most part. 
Moving into our topic, cool. the main topic for the episode, again, USU's Inclusion Center. I want you to just start off by telling us what is the Inclusion Center? Awesome. So the Inclusion Center has gone through a couple different names, but it has been at the university for, I think, 20 plus years. Um, so it recently got changed to the Inclusion Center about three years ago. Before that, it was the Access and Diversity Center um, for those that have been at the university and for a bit. But essentially what we do is we have five programs inside the Inclusion Center. So we have my program, which is the Women and Gender Program. And then we have the Multicultural Student Program, our Indigenous Student Program, our Adult Learner Student Program. And that is for anyone that identifies as an adult learner, which is someone that's essentially non-traditional. So someone who is over the age of 25, is a parent... So isn't that stereotypical That's 18? really cool. I did see that on the website earlier today, and I was like, I wonder what that is. Yeah. But it's true. If you come to university as an undergraduate student and you're a parent and you're 31 years old, it mm -hmm. can be intimidating. So it's nice to know that there's... A resource. There's a, a resource. place. Yeah. And then we also have our gender and sexuality program. And so we're under student affairs... So essentially, our main goal is to serve students, but we are also a resource for the entire campus community, as well as the broader Cache Valley community. Awesome. So we'll do workshops, that sort of thing. But specifically for students, we have our student clubs. So I oversee our Perspectives Club, which is our women um, and gender equity club on campus. Awesome. They're currently looking at changing their name, so stay tuned for that. Okay. <laughs> um, and then I also am over the new Disabled and Neurodiverse Aggie Student Club. So that's brand new on campus. They've had a student club before and not ever been department sponsored. Okay. So that's brand new to our office. So what department sponsors this then? This is the Inclusion Center is its own department. Oh, okay. And so essentially the difference between a sponsored student club and an unsponsored student club is they receive funding oh. and they have a dedicated advisor. Whereas for USUSA, so for our USUSA, so our USU Student Association, anyone can have a club. So essentially, you know, you've got the golf club or you've got like the insomniac Student oh, club. yes. And essentially, to be a recognized student club, you just have to have a certain number of students, a student charter, and then abide by the rules of the USUSA. Okay. But you don't receive any funding, and you don't have an official club advisor. Unless... Unless you're, you're a department-sponsored club. Awesome. Which our student clubs are. That's great. <laughs> so besides uh, my student clubs that I oversee, we also have our Queer Student Association, our Black Student Union, our Latinx Student Association, our Asian Student Association, our Non-Traditional Student Association, and our Indigenous Students. We have our Native American Student Council and our Pacifica Student Association. All right. That is a lot to remember. Way to yes. just say that off the fly. <laughs> she has no notes in front of her audience. I apologize if I said it fast. <laughs> it is all on our website. <laughs> well, that's awesome. What resources do these associations and does mm -hmm. this department provide to folks? So essentially, we have three major goals. So we have our first one is student support. So we are here to make sure, one, that you have a safe community that you can come to. We're, we're all about building that community for students. And then part of that is the social aspect. But then the other thing that we do is education and support. 
So we do a lot of outreach programs. A lot of the events that we do, like No Man's Land Film Festival, Mm -hmm. is about raising awareness for our particular student demographic and providing a space where they have that education and they have those events that is representative of their identities and their needs. And then we also provide crisis management. So we have our scholarships, our hardship fundings, those sorts of things. Wow, that's great. I didn't realize that you did provide funding for students. That's awesome. I guess I should ask if students do feel like they need those resources and they want to access them, how could they do that? That's a great question. (laughs) The best way is just to come in. So we are at the Taggart Student Center, third floor. I know it feels like a ghost town, but I promise we are up here. (laughs) But 315 in particular, you can also, if you go to our website, inclusion.usu.edu, you can book an appointment with any of the program coordinators. All right. And just meet with us directly. We can get you involved with the student clubs. Our student clubs meeting times are also listed on the website. So like, for example, some of the upcoming club events that we have is we have a Friendsgiving dinner that Perspectives is putting on. And then we also have a heritage night that our Black Student Union is putting on. And everybody is welcome to come to those. Awesome. I will definitely link to the website in the show notes. Awesome. Do you think that this department has had as big of an impact as you would have hoped? Is there maybe a space where you'd like to see it happening more? Or has the impact been greater than you dreamed of? That is a really good question. I think that as a department, we do a really good job of serving the student base that we are trying to reach. Because honestly, like it is a predominantly white cisgender campus. Yes. And so creating that space where folks can come and feel like they have that community and have that safe space is really important. And I feel like for the most part, we do a good job of that. I think where I would love to see us move forward (laughs) is having more of a pull towards the students that don't know about us. Yeah. There have been, especially with the pandemic, and we have basically two freshman (laughs) classes, it's hard to navigate getting the word out there for students that were here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of that is just letting other departments know that we're here and also getting them on board, getting some departmental buy-in from other colleges where they're willing to plug the Inclusion Center and refer students to us. And your collaborations. I mean, you collaborated with the outdoor program to put on the No Man Lands Film Festival. Yes. And that's why we're here. So, (laughs) (laughs) And ideally, I would love to do more of that. And it's, um, it's something we're moving in the direction of. So that's good to hear. How did you get involved and what is your background? (laughs) And you can take that as broadly as you like. Yes. So let's see. The short-ish version of this story (laughs) is that, so I did my undergrad here and it was actually the first formal education I ever received. I came from a very conservative background um, and I was homeschooled until I was about, I think I left home when I was about 17. Wow. Uh Uh-huh. And I got my GED worked for a few years and then came up to USU. And the reason I came to USU in particular, because I do have to give a shout out to admissions and the scholarship office, is I got accepted to a bunch of different schools and I didn't know what I was doing. 
And so I sent an email that essentially was like, <laughs> help! <laughs> and nobody from the other schools responded. And USU was on it. And they got oh, exactly wow. the resources that I needed. And they connected me with people. Then they followed up to make sure that I got connected. Ugh. And so it was exactly where I needed to That's be. That's great. And such a bummer that only one out of, I don't know how many schools six. responded to you. That's so sad to hear because I do know folks coming in for the first time, whether they're first generation or... Or mm-hmm. similar to your situation, it can be so daunting. So, yep. And as a first-gen student, you really don't have those resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you do need a little bit more participation from admissions and scholarship. Yeah. And it was it was exactly what I needed. And so I, I do have a real affinity for you. <laughs> so I did my undergrad here. And then I worked, surprisingly, actually, in the office that we're currently sitting in. Oh, wow! As part <laughs> of Gear Up. So for... Those who are unfamiliar, Gear Up is essentially a college readiness program. So they partner with USU, but they're their own thing. It's a grant, a federally funded grant, trying to get low-income students into college. So it's a seven-year grant. It follows them from the time that they are in middle school to the time they are their first year of college. Wow. Hell yeah. So I got to work with them, and I loved it. And then I left and went and did my master's. I was lucky enough to go overseas, so I got to go to England and Paris. I know. (laughs) What was my life? (laughs) Sounds so so wonderful. It was amazing. And London and Paris, those are two places that people just dream about, put on posters, and then the backdrop of movies. And I got to live there. Oh, gosh. (laughs) It was for you. It was an incredible experience. But my partner is here, and also I love this university, so... I came back after I worked at University of Berkeley for a little bit doing a program there. And then I came back and during my undergrad, I told you this was the shortest version. So <laughs> it's, it's a lot. I'm That's sorry. Okay. <laughs> I, hope I'm I not like the long anyone. version. <laughs> but as an undergrad, I was able to intern at the Center for Women and Gender. Oh, and okay. So when I got my master's, they had a job opening and I applied and I came back. So I worked over there for about a year and then it transitioned into the new Center for Intersectional Gender Studies and Research. The center was trying to do a lot. They were trying to serve students at the same time they were over academics. Yeah. It just kind of, it it needed to be split up. So the decision was made, the academic side went to CHAS, and then the student affairs side... And CHAS... The College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I was a chass major, so. <laughs> but, and then the Inclusion Center was nice enough to welcome me back. So awesome. I'm back in my same old office and doing the stuff that I love. Wow, what a beautiful adventure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> to round it back here after going to beautiful places and studying abroad, I, that. That sounds incredible. And what a change from being homeschooled. Yes, it was. (laughs) (laughs) And good to know about the Gear Up program. Yes. If somebody wants to access that, how would students, middle school students, you Mm -hmm. said, get involved? So essentially, the grant will cover certain schools. So Logan High students are covered through the grant, and they should know who their Gear Up coordinator is there. (laughs) So is this a specific, sorry to interrupt, is this a specific Utah thing? So Gear Up is federally funded. So there are Gear Up programs throughout the U.S. Oh, that's great. And throughout the state. So I believe the one that's here at partnering with USU, they oversee seven to nine different schools, depending on the grant. So we have schools in, well, we, (laughs) they have schools in Logan. They also have San Pete County. APA is one of their schools. 
But for anyone that's interested in getting involved with them, you can check out their website at usu.edu and then slash gear up. Awesome. Thank you. I, I had no idea. And I worked with high school students for the past two years. <laughs> so that would have been good to know. And hopefully folks at the high school know about it. What is your favorite part of your job? The students. Yeah. A hundred percent. I love being able to like stuff like this where I get to meet you and then follow up and see <laughs> the cool things that you're involved in and working in. I love teaching. I love being able to talk to students in a classroom about privilege and oppression and what that looks like. There isn't an aspect of my job I dislike, really. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty, I'm pretty blessed uh. with the job that I have. I love the programs I get to do. I, I love that I get to do things like the Fat Acceptance Series. It's a very niche job. There's not a lot of places that would be like, yeah, go for it. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I find working in the environmental nonprofit sector or just the environmental sector itself, as well as in the queer community where the jobs are. I did the Utah Pride Festival mm -hmm. for a number of years and everybody working in those jobs, emails aren't their favorite or waking up early or working late. There's like those small things that aren't their favorite that are just not going to be their favorite either way. They still love their jobs and it makes it feel so worth it to them. And that's, I keep pursuing jobs in these spaces and because the overall cause is great and it's empowering and it's to increase quality of life. Exactly. And it is, it really is cool to see real-time results. So I, I'm really lucky in my job where I get to do the longer term programs and awareness and to kind of see the change since I've been at USU mm -hmm. for so long to see that change happen, especially like when I was a student here at USU, you know, and as a little baby queer, there was no <laughs> way I was going to get involved, you know, and like it wasn't something I was aware was even here, the QSA. And at the time, I believe it was the Life Club. And I unfortunately do think there are still some students out there who don't know. When I got here, the first thing I did was like, okay, where's the queer community? Yeah. <laughs> and I sent the bat signal out to like the few people that I was talking to and they kind of were like, oh, you should meet my friends. And I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, I would like to find the queer community here because it is everywhere. It is. And it's something that like, the more that we, you know, like one of the things we've got our new gender and sexuality program coordinator, Erica, and one of the things that we've been working towards is getting that pride index up. I don't know if you know about the campus pride index. I don't. Essentially, it's an index that was created to see how LGBTQA plus friendly your campus is. Oh, oh they, that's so cool. Yes, and so like for those that are in high school and looking at where to come, you can look and see who has the highest. So five is the highest. And essentially, that means you're the most friendly. So where's Logan? Or not Logan, I guess Utah State Utah University. State is it a 2.5, I believe. Okay. So making, <laughs> we are slowly making progress. And the previous LGBTQA or Gender and Sexuality Program Coordinator, Macy Keith, that was something that was 100% her initiative. So I think when she first started, we were almost at a 1%. Oh, <laughs> and so we we're getting there. One of the things that they use is whether or not there's a lavender graduation, which Aww. we have done. So we now have a lavender graduation. <laughs> oh, that's so exciting. 
exciting. Good so, job. For any of our, our queer USU student listeners that want to graduate and get a little lavender stole. Oh my gosh. So if, as a master's student? You may absolutely. Oh, I'm like going to cry. That's so exciting. Yeah, beautiful. <laughs> I'll show you that. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay. Well, that's great to know. I wonder, do you collaborate at all with the new Logan Pride Center? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've worked with Logan Pride in the past. Um, so Logan Pride has been around for a little bit and they have that new house. Yep. And uh, unfortunately with the pandemic, it's just kind of been collaboration mm-hmm. is hard, but I do know that Erica is working with them and we were, we collaborated with them for the pride festival that happened in September. I went to that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and so hopefully we'll see a little bit more of that come out. Yeah. I actually interviewed someone from the pride center there for a past episode. So awesome. yeah, um, it's <laughs> nice to, uh, infiltrate the queer community here in Logan. <laughs> as much as possible. Yeah. <laughs> I have two more questions for you. The first one is, I had a gentleman, an old white cis religious gentleman, come to me and ask this question, and I keep in my head dreaming that I would have had the correct response and it would have been snappy and it would have changed his mind and his God would have changed or disappeared or became a woman. I don't know. But the question was, and he did not say it as woke or properly as (laughs) this, but why do queer people and people of color need clubs? This is a question that I've actually gotten a lot. Okay. And one of the things that a lot of people say with that is that they feel like it's identity politics. They feel like, you know, why do you need a special interest club? And my response usually to this is, well, why do we have a chess club? Why do we have a polo club? What about the insomniacs? Does that bother you as well? Or and what is it, a, like, I can just like imagine this person's response being like, well, chess is a game and people need to play the game. <laughs> they want to play chess. Yes. And what about a gentleman's club? Right. Well, men need to smoke cigars. <laughs> I don't know. This guy probably doesn't smoke cigars because yeah. he's very religious. But <laughs> And the thing is, is that what people are uncomfortable with is that they feel like they're being othered. And what usually needs to be pointed out is that the reason these communities are needed is because the rest of society is othering them. Yes. And they need a place that is safe, a place where they can build a community. You know, I mean, and, and another thing that I would like to point out to this gentleman, if I were to <laughs> meet him, and just kind of ask him about is where are his safe spaces? Oh. Where does he feel like that he gets to be, have that community? You know, and it probably has to do with church, family, those spaces. And recognizing that every human deserves that. It is a human need to have a space to have a community. And that isn't something that should be regulated, just whether or not you meet the majority of the people who are in a position of power to create that space. That is such a heartwarming and welcoming way to end that conversation. (laughs) (laughs) I know in my mind is like, well, I do want him to know that I have love for him as a human and I also want to tell him he's wrong (laughs) but that's that's true people do need those spaces yeah it's a need and I love that I get to be a part of building that for students I needed it as a student you know my my college experience like just with the fact that like being part of the Aggie family yeah you know is going to create a different experience and having a space where students who don't have that anywhere else on campus it's so important yeah My last question is about 
what I've been seeing in my emails and what I saw <laughs> while I was waiting at the coffee table, this fat acceptance movement, or yes. I don't know if there's an event coming up, but it seems to be pushed out a lot <laughs> from the Inclusion Center, and I love it. Please, uh, just share a little bit about this fat acceptance movement. Thank you so much for asking me about it, because it is the project I am most excited about right Ooh! now. <laughs> so it is something that we started in the pandemic. It was last spring semester, so Alina Begay, who is our Indigenous Program Coordinator, and I, we got together and we were kind of like, we want to have this space. Because, you know, you were seeing so much fat phobia come out of the yeah. conversations around the pandemic, you know, where if you were considered obese, then you were at higher risk. And the amount of hate and judgment that came from that. And then that whole thing with the COVID-19 pounds that you were going to gain. Ugh, yeah. And so we were just, we wanted to support our students in a, this very specific way. The fat acceptance movement isn't, isn't new. It actually started in the 1960s. It has since kind of been distilled. We've seen different versions of it with the body positive movement, as well as body neutrality and health at any size the reason specific for fat acceptance is kind of what we were talking about with imposter syndrome is that body positivity, body neutrality, it looks at how an individual relates to their body. Yeah. And it kind of addresses those feelings that you have towards your own body without addressing the larger structural social inequities that lead to those feelings. And fat acceptance is about fat justice. It's about activism. It's about fighting for those spaces to be changed. It's about recognizing the racist, sexist history of the BMI. I want to pull something out of that really quick, because this is something that it's relatively new for me. There's the body positive mm -hmm. and body neutral. Yes. And then there's fat acceptance. Yes. And those are on either ends of this little spectrum <laughs> and body positivism uh -huh. is just like, Oh yeah. Love your body. Yes. And then fat acceptance is like, yeah, no, everybody is a good body. Yes. Okay. Essentially what it is. And so both body positivity and body neutrality were born out of the fat acceptance movement. Okay. And they do great work, but by focusing on the individual, by saying love your body and or with body neutrality, focus on what your body can do for you, not what it looks like. Okay. It still is about the re individual's relationship to their body and not the looking broader at culture. Exactly. Okay. And fat acceptance is about let's change the way we're talking about fat bodies yeah. and bodies in general. Let's change the fact that we're so like, let's address fat phobia. One of the studies, I'm hoping to put this on the website soon with Ooh. all the resources for fat <laughs> acceptance. So stay tuned. I have a few projects I'm working on, but one of the things that I read that I have in the infographics is a study that was done that showed that children under the age of 10 are more scared of being fat than they are of nuclear war, of losing <gasps> both their parents of oh. cancer, that what scares them most is being fat. Oh, gosh. And, like, actually addressing that, addressing the fact that more children die from eating disorders than they do from childhood obesity. Yeah. And so that's kind of what the fat acceptance movement is all about, is actually fighting those preconceived notions and stereotypes and the, the fat bias 
and size bias that we have in the world. What incredible work. Good job. Way to uh, spearhead this. Was this, you said, your project? Yes, and Alina Begay, our and indigenous program coordinator. Um, Shout out to Alina. She is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> well, in my hand, I'm holding, they have these really beautiful little pamphlets that has fat activism ally and fat acceptance, and they're beautiful. I love them. The colors are great. I don't know if you designed them. <laughs> I did. <laughs> but I read it front to back before we got together, and I just wanted to read some of these don'ts. Please do. Because I see people doing this all the time. It is frustrating. The first don't. There's one, two, three, four. There's five. Don't body snark or make negative comments about your own body as well as others. Mm -hmm. Part of that, too, I know I have, I'm not going to name who it is, but somebody that I am close to will be like, oh, look at how skinny and beautiful and blonde and big boobed that lady is. And it's like, can we not comment on their appearance? (laughs) Because what you're saying is like, wow, that's ideal. Mm -hmm. And growing up with that is hard for everybody. Um, Another don't. Don't engage in diet talk or food moralizing, good food, bad food, sinful food, guilt-free food, etc., which to me this one's especially interesting because as somebody who is in the environmental world mm-hmm. and environmental justice, to me there is, I mean, there is fast food, there is local food, there is yes. fresh food, there are food deserts, mm-hmm. and accessibility is its whole own issue exactly of what kind of food that you're able to access once you're at a point in your life which maybe you will never be to afford fresh local food i i hope you do buy it but not everybody does exactly. it's just such an interesting conversation around it and i've been with people who are like yeah well I only ever shop at the farmer's market and (laughs) I used to be one of those people. And I I have also been guilty of that. I do often shop at the farmer's market and what what a great privilege. But in the past, you know, I used to be snooty about it and kind of look down on other people who didn't and who ate other things. Mm -hmm. Interesting conversations, maybe a whole nother topic for a different time. (laughs) Don't number three is don't assume fat people want to lose weight, that they are or should be dieting, and that they hate their bodies. Which, again, I know somebody who, every time they see somebody kind of over the weight, they're like, oh man, like, I bet their life is hard. And it's like, no. No. Why? (laughs) Why assume that? And I hope you don't assume that to anybody's face. It's just, it... It kills me. I'm I'm putting out my grievances, folks. <laughs> don't number four. Don't mask or justify phobia as a concern for others' health. Reducing someone to their weight is the opposite of caring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you'll see this a lot where, and you know, it, it usually does come, especially for if it's from a family member, it's coming from a place of concern. Mm-hmm. But by not acknowledging that that concern is rooted in fat phobia, that the opposite of caring about someone's health is reducing them down to their size. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's harmful. And the sooner that we recognize that, the better. It's something that even something as simple as being like, you look so good. Have you lost weight? Yeah. That might seem like a positive comment that you're complimenting someone. Mm -hmm. But what you're actually saying is I believe that you would look better smaller. Yeah. Yeah. Or even the comment, you look so good, you look so skinny. Exactly. Just, oh, I hate it when other people are like, oh, skinny. And it's like, I've received that. Mm-hmm. And at points, that was 
the height of an eating disorder. Exactly. And it's like, oh, so I have to kill myself for you to give me this compliment. Exactly. And it's also, it's so deeply problematic because it's making so many assumptions about this person and it's, and it's reducing someone to their size. Yep. Which, last don't is don't listen to fat jokes and fat shaming period yes that the period wasn't emphasized on this pamphlet (laughs) but there you go gently interrupt and explain why it is hurtful and untrue just do it folks don't tolerate bullshit jokes (laughs) i realize i said all the don'ts so i want to really quick fly through the do's and then we can wrap up here but dues for fat activism dues for fat activism ally and fat acceptance do your research read up on the obesity crisis and how it is used to justify phobia and anti fat bias do fill your instagram feed with amazing fat bodies do speak out diverse opinions fat people of color fat queer and trans folks Fat people with disabilities, in-betweenies, and super fats, etc. I've never heard in-betweenies before. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I got a lot of questions on that. An in-betweenie would be someone that is in-between being straight-sized or plus-sized. Ah. Yes. All right. So I would be an in-betweenie. <laughs> okay. In-betweenie. It's also just an adorable term. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do proactively create spaces that are size-friendly and accessible at your job and in your social circles. Do work to create and support size-based anti-discrimination policies, ordinances, and laws. Yes. I I love that. I love this pamphlet. I'm going to take it. (laughs) Yes, please do. (laughs) I also have another one that goes over the myths and facts of fat phobia. How fun. Um, Well, thank you so much for coming (laughs) on. I want you to, one last time, tell folks how they can get involved, maybe follow y'all on social media. Yes, please. So... The easiest way to get involved is to start by either coming into the office or coming to one of our events. And so you can find our events at inclusion.usu.edu and then backslash events, or you can just click on the events tab, (laughs) or you can come to the university's Taggart Student Center or TSC, third floor, room 315. Or if you were to follow us on social media, it's just inclusionusu. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I need to thank my dear friend AJ for creating and producing the intro music for the show. And as always, use your head and be clever. Bye, everybody.